kind of giving over to your own goodness, your own natural lovingness. What's this like to give over to the natural goodness in your own heart? If you want, you can imagine situations, including challenging ones. And I suggest you kind of work your way up from mild to medium to high challenge if you want. Seeing yourself in these challenging situations while also feeling in your body, emotionally, this being carried by a wave of natural innate lovingness or goodness in yourself as what is carrying you along or fueling and feeding and protecting you in these challenging situations. And you can register in yourself what it feels like to be lived by your lovingness in these difficult relationships. You can still be strong, you can still protect yourself while being lived by your goodness, lived by your lovingness in these challenging situations. can register what it would feel like in your body to be this way in these challenging relationships or situations. What would it feel like in your body to be lived by love while dealing with difficulty?
Okay. So I'd now like to talk about, <clears throat> as I said, human natures. Another side to the relational story. And the introduction of that will be in a story that you may have heard uh, from other sources, perhaps for, even from me, The Two Wolves in the Heart. And <clears throat> the way I heard this story is that a woman, a Native American, First People, was asked toward the end of her life, Grandmother, how did you become so happy, so wise, so loved, so skillful and successful? What did you do? She paused and she reflected and she said, Well, you know, I think it's first because when I was young, I realized that in my heart were two wolves, one of love and one of hate. And second, I also realized that everything depended upon which one I fed each day. So we have two takeaways, really, from that teaching story. One, the presence of the wolf of hate, so-called, metaphorically, the capacity, if not inclination, toward envy, ill will, schadenfreude, um, anger, rage, discrimination, prejudice, dehumanization, violence, even war. That capacity that's in almost every human heart, including my own. And the second takeaway we have is the recognition, which is now supported by the science of experience-dependent neuroplasticity, that we're always feeding one wolf or another. Or more broadly, we're always feeding one kind of tendency or one kind of inclination or another. And the question then becomes, which wolf will we feed? With a brain that is very good at getting fat on negativity and not so good at growing and developing through wholesome beneficial experiences the negativity bias of the brain, which I've sometimes described as like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. So what are we going to do? And this is where I think it's important to kind of have a poignant recognition here of the power of the wolf of hate, metaphorically, broadly defined, which tends to be kind of dismissed or not so talked about it or sort of shamed, uh, often in psychological and especially spiritual circles. But if we hate the wolf of hate, what does that do? feeds the wolf of hate. So while it's true that bands that were good, bands are hominid, uh, hunter-gatherer, early human, later human um, ancestors generally lived in small bands that bred mainly internal to the band. So bands that were really good at cooperating internally could outcompete other bands for scarce resources. And also... Bands that were really good at dehumanizing, fearing, attacking, exploiting other bands were also good at gathering the resources they needed to keep their kids alive so they could pass on their own genes. So we have this coevolution, really, of the wolf of love and the wolf of hate. For example, uh, with some significant exceptions, but on the whole, the uh, death rate due to violence between males was much greater between hunter-gatherer bands than in all the wars of the 20th century. Roughly in the 20th century, about one in 100 males born in the 20th century died due to war in one way or another. Whereas in hunter-gatherer bands in present time, again with some exceptions, but on the whole, 
in hunter-gatherer bands presently or in recent past or through inference from archaeological records uh, you know, from a few thousand years ago, the death rate due to male-on-male violence, primarily between band violence, was about 12 to 15 percent, 12 to 15 times greater. So I think it's important, if we are going to deal with the wolf of hate, to not underestimate its power. It's a very strong tendency in us. There's a lot of research about how easy it is. As soon as you arbitrarily create a distinction between us and them, the wolf of hate starts looking around for an enemy. It's not yet attacking, but it's looking around. It's primed. And then if over here we feel fearful or shorted, you know, in other words, that we're not resourced enough over here, and especially if we feel attacked or mistreated by them, whoosh, the wolf of hate starts looking for someone to bite. All right? What are we going to do about it, especially given these evolutionary tendencies and inclinations and capacities in the brain, and also what are we going to do living in a world today in which we're pushed up close and personal in a small leaky lifeboat, planet Earth, 7 billion of us, pushing 8 billion real soon. Um, how, what can we do? How can we expand the circle of us eventually to include the whole wide world? And that's a real consideration in my personal opinion That is that the way in which the human species comes to terms with this and handles this over the next 100 years, really the next 1,000 years, will be the primary determinant really going forward of the course of human history. Um, tribalism of various kinds served our ancestors well in terms of passing on their genes. But I think uh, today it's the greatest threat, really, in the 21st century and beyond. So what are we going to do about this? You know, it's also important to appreciate that the wolf of hate isn't just about those strange people living on the other part of the world. Often, the wolf of hate gets active inside a relationship, a family, a couple, a team at work, you know, uh, the Montagues and the Capulets, you probably know, of course, the two families in Romeo and Juliet. So this is from this really interesting book. I think it's called Baboon Metaphysics. Or I'm blowing the title, but someone can help me here. Anyway, it says here, in between family fights, between groups, the baboon's sense of I expands to include all of her close kin. But in within family fights, the sense of I, the us, if you will, contracts to include only herself. And this explanation serves for baboons as much as it does for the Montagues and the Capulets, the two families in Romeo and Juliet. Right? What are we going to do about it? I think there are three places to intervene, basically. We can intervene out in the world. We can do things to encourage the rule of law, We can stick up for people who have been oppressed, discriminated against, mistreated. It's important to do what we can out in the world, obviously. We can do what we can inside our own bodies or in the bodies of others. You know, when people are less hungry or desperate or in pain, they're less likely to tip into the wolf of hate. And we can intervene inside our own minds. We can grow resources there that help us deal with difficulties. All are important. Uh, The Buddhist focus was on growing resources inside the mind. That's my focus as well, personally and professionally, as a psychologist. So how can we do it? We can use the mind to stimulate the neural circuitry 
that's wholesome, that's positive, that's useful, to stimulate those neural circuits, if you will, loosely defined. And since neurons that fire together wire together, through stimulating them, strengthen them. In other words, we can use the mind to change the brain, to change the mind for the better, to benefit ourselves and other beings. One of the key aspects of that, which goes to relationship issues, and we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of all that after lunch, is to feel strong yourself. You know, there's a saying, fences make for good neighbors. And there's a lot of research that talks about the two great themes, really, in human psychology, autonomy and intimacy. You know, the two go together, of course. But there's a lot of research that shows that a strong sense of autonomy a kind of inner freedom, as I was speaking about compassion earlier, a kind of autonomy over here can help us really sustain intimacy with them over there. Research also shows that, research also also shows, that's like a tongue twister, um, research also shows that if we don't feel strong over here, if we feel weak over here, or if we feel flooded, uh, porous boundaries, just by the other person, we can't sustain empathy. We can't sustain compassion, and we have to back out of the relationship because we're so flooded by it. Very often, people who look distant or inert or stony um, are often people who are so actually connected and so affected by relationships that they kind of withdraw out of self-protection. And I think that's a useful and also compassionate way to think about them and useful because it goes to what's needed here, which is to shore up the sense of being me, broadly defined, as a way to really support we. So I really encourage you to take a look at that and to think about, you know, to reframe interpersonal issues that in which there tends to be a lot of focus on some kind of problem with we, to ask oneself, What if I shored it up over here in me would enable me to have a healthier we? See that kind of counterintuitive way of looking at it? It's not the only way to look at it, but I think it's a useful and counterintuitive one. So I thought we could do a practice here around feeling strong over here and centered over here, and then we can use that as the basis when we come back from lunch for really moving into the deeper waters of we. Okay? Want to try a practice again and then we'll segue into lunch? So this one's about just feeling strong. And I think it's important to appreciate there are many kinds of strength. Not just, you know, macho chest thumping, but enduring, lasting, you know, hanging in there, bearing pain. Those are important aspects of inner strength. So... We'll just do a little practice here around activating and then internalizing a sense of strength yourself. So, if you can, come into just being present. And notice that awareness itself, a kind of field or space, 
through which thoughts or sensations or sounds and so forth pass, awareness itself keeps on going no matter what passes through it. To use a traditional metaphor, if awareness is like the sky, storm clouds may pass through it, flocks of pretty birds, all the rest, but the sky itself is never disturbed or harmed or changed by what passes through it. In effect, awareness is strong enough to represent anything, to contain anything, without being harmed itself. You can also explore a sense of strength, broadly defined in your own body. Recognizing that in this moment, it's almost certainly true that your body is basically all right, right now. There's enough air to breathe, the heart is beating, there's not overwhelming pain. There's an ongoingness, a vitality, a kind of strength as well. Feeling this, recognizing it. Letting needless anxiety fall away. Recognizing any internal resistance to feeling strong in one way or another. And allowing and encouraging that resistance to establishing yourself in an intrinsic, innate sense of strength. Letting the sense of strength in whatever form it comes sink into you. So that feeling strong stabilizes and consolidates inside you. As more and more your own resting state in your core, a sense of strength.
Also bringing to mind times that you were really strong, perhaps physical situations, a workout, being in wilderness, lifting a weight, getting through an illness or an injury, or times you stood up for others or stood up for yourself. Calling up the body memory of times you were strong, feeling them again here and now. Embodying strength here and now, perhaps sitting up a little straighter, or seeing what it's like if there's determination in your face, or in your eyes, even if they're closed. Not going to war with anyone, not caught up in contentiousness, a centered strength. strength that is at peace in it at its roots here and now In the language of meditation, this is a concentration practice in which the object of attention is strength. And there's an opening into and an encouraging of a deepening absorption in a feeling of strength. Even as you absorb strength into your being, And then in the last step here, as you like, explore what it's like to have a centered quality of strength that you may you know, reactivate, regenerate again and again, while also bringing into awareness the people around you. Exploring what it's like to feel both strong and open to others or related to them. And try to explore being as open and relational as possible while sustaining a real sense of strength over here.
Sometimes this feels like being very open to others and non-resisting of them as they sort of wash through you. Their energy, their views, their reactions, washing through you without resistance in an openness to them while simultaneously feeling rooted and centered and strong yourself. can also explore this combination of, of strength and relatedness, bringing to mind other people in your life. It can help to start kind of mild and then medium and then intense in terms of you know, the difficulty factor of that other person for you. you know, imagining being centered and strong in a casual relationship. And then imagining centered and strong in a moderately challenging relationship with some mixed qualities to it. And then if you want, imagining being centered and strong in a really challenging relationship. So I'll be quiet for a couple minutes here as you play around with this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.